Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America, a common fear that TV anchors and reporters share is the specter of a viewer becoming infatuated with them. They dominate our televisions morning, afternoon, and night. However, on rare occasions, this infatuation can sometimes turn deadly. Amy Coons arrived to begin her shift as a producer at KIMT, the CBS affiliate in Mason County, Iowa, at around 4 a.m. on July 27, 1995. The 6 a.m. morning news was scheduled to be presented that day by 27-year-old Jody Huizentrout, an up-and-coming TV anchor who had been working at the station for the past two years. Jody was expected to arrive at the station around 4 a.m. in preparation for the morning news. 4 a.m. came and went, but Jody hadn't yet reported to work. Amy called up Jody, who was extremely apologetic as she explained she had overslept and would be there in just a few minutes. Two hours passed and Jody still hadn't arrived, forcing Amy to stand in for her in presenting the news. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Nina Instead, and welcome to episode 48 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law and Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. Jody Huizentrout was born June 5, 1968, in Long Prairie, Minnesota. She was the youngest of three daughters to Maurice and Imogene, Jane, Huizentrout. Jody was born later in the couple's life, and they described her as their pride and joy, with her sister, Joanne Nath, commenting, She was a late-in-life baby, and she seemed pretty blessed. She was a constant joy. Despite the 18-year age gap between Jody and Joanne, they were remarkably close, with Joanne referring to Jody as her kid sis. Jody graduated from Long Prairie High School in 1986, where she was voted the class clown. Afterwards, she enrolled in St. Cloud State University, 
graduating in 1990 with a double major in mass communication and speech communication. Jody was a bright young woman who had ambitions from a young age to enter the field of journalism. With her keen determination, these ambitions quickly materialized. In February of 1991, Jody began working at KGAN-TV in Cedar Rapids before leaving in April of 1992 to take on the role of morning anchor at KSAX-TV in Alexandria, Minnesota. I really shouldn't say this very loudly because I, I say it very loudly because I don't want word to get out. I've got some urgent news to tell you. Here's what I've got to share. It has been a wild 24 hours weather-wise across Minnesota. In Tracy, there's severe storm damage this morning. As you can see by this map, Tracy is located in the southwestern part of the state between Marshall and Worthington. About 100 residents are homeless this morning after high winds swept through a trailer park. Most of the displaced residents spent the night in the town's National Guard Armory. Seven people were treated for minor injuries and released. Here, she was known for her friendly and welcoming demeanor, which made her a joy to watch on television. Her manager, Mike Burgess, recalled, She's one of those very nice people who come from small towns. She works hard and is always willing to marshal a parade, speak at a breakfast, cover a news event, somebody you could count on. In 1994, Jody moved from Alexandria to Mason City, Iowa, a city of around 30,000 residents. Mason City is strategically situated between both Des Moines and Minneapolis, a banking and shopping hub for corn farmers. While it's a city, it has a more small-town feel to it. And with an extremely low crime rate, Jody felt safe. The move was prompted by Jody's new role as an anchorwoman at KIMT, the CBS affiliate in Mason County, Iowa. She moved to an apartment in downtown Mason City, located along the nearby Winnebago River. Jody was ecstatic about the fresh career move, and she took on the role of anchorwoman for the morning and noon news presentations with pride. The new role came with its own hardships, however, as Jody had to report to work between 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. Nevertheless, Jody took the early mornings in stride. She knew it was necessary to further her career. It was the kind of role most working their way up in the business can only dream about. To save time in the morning, Jody would get up and get showered at her apartment and then get ready at the station, bringing along her makeup and hair dryer. Each morning and evening, residents of Mason City tuned in to watch Jody read the news of the day. She had a deep curiosity which served her well as an anchorwoman, with Marianne Madden, a board member of the Iowa City Crisis Center, commenting, in my job, I talked to a lot of young reporters, and Jody was top-notch. While journalists can oftentimes be accused of being hard-boiled, Jody was the gold standard. She knew how to make people feel at ease and comfortable during interviews, and she packaged the news she presented in an informative way that kept viewers immersed. When Jody wasn't working, she could often be found playing golf. It was during her time in high school that she developed an immense love for the sport and was twice a member of the state championship high school golf team. Ray Grove, her former band director in Long Prairie, said of her, Jody's this upbeat, friendly, outgoing, very lovely person. You always knew when she was in the room. Jody exuded compassion, and it was this compassion that led to her volunteering for the Cancer Foundation, 
Heart Fund, and a local hospice. While Jody loved her role at KIMT, she wanted to further her career and break into national television. She detailed her hopes and desires in her journal. In April of 1995, she wrote, My number one goal is to get a new job. She set her sights on a larger market television station, writing in her journal in June, Great friends in Mason City, but professionally, I'm fed up. It's difficult finding a new job, and I'm confused about agents and what to do. On the morning of June 27, 1995, Amy Coons arrived at KIMT for her shift. At 4 a.m., Jody Hoisentrout was expected to arrive at the station, but 4 a.m. passed and Jody was a no-show. When she realized that Jody hadn't arrived at work, Amy called her apartment. Jody picked up the phone and was apologetic as she explained she had overslept and would be in shortly. The minutes continued to trickle past, but there was still no sign of Jody. The morning show, Daybreak, was to be anchored by Jody, however, by the time 6 a.m. rolled around, she had yet to show up at the station. The show needed to go on as scheduled, so Amy took Jody's place, presenting the morning news. When cameras stopped rolling an hour later, Amy contacted the police. She asked them to conduct a welfare check on Jody. At around 7.16 a.m., Officer Jerry Miller pulled up outside Jody's apartment, which was about a mile away from the television station. As he approached the apartment through the parking lot, he found Jody's brand new red Mazda Miata. Immediately, he noticed evidence of a struggle in the form of a pair of women's red shoes, a blow dryer, a bottle of hairspray, bent car keys, and earrings, which were scattered on the ground around the vehicle. Beside the car, there were ominous drag marks. Officer Miller called for backup, and a search party was immediately assembled while the car was impounded for further examination. Forensic experts found an unidentified palm print on the car. Inside the vehicle, they also found strands of unknown hair. Investigators fanned out further afield in search of any evidence that could lead them to Jody. With the assistance of several trained sniffer dogs, they scanned along a two-mile stretch of the rain-swollen Winnebago River, which ran through a park next to Jody's apartment complex. Jody's face on television was replaced by her face on missing persons posters printed and distributed throughout the city. They described Jody as having blonde hair and standing five feet, three inches tall, weighing about 120 pounds. That evening, a news conference was held detailing Jody's disappearance. Um, she has not been seen since uh, last night. However, they did talk to her this morning, a little after 4 o'clock a.m. And I want to stress that what we're doing at this point in time is we're working from the apartment and we're working our way out. And we are at about a quarter of a mile right now. We'll be extending that search probably to about a half a mile or so. And I don't think I want to comment any further about that. We'll be doing a neighborhood canvas. Those houses that would front streets that would be... Uh, that would have access to the apartment complex. We'll be getting a hold of those residents and asking them if they saw or heard anything. About one quarter of a mile from the um, apartment complex was searched along the riverbank and out extending from the riverbank. And there were a number of hits 
uh, along the riverbank. However, we have not confirmed whether those would be something that we would follow up on or not. Uh, we are back at the riverbank with the uh, canines and we are going to check to see if there is additional hits along the river. If so, we will then uh, load the canines into a, a boat and see if we can do a, a grid search along the river itself. The search for Jody was in full swing as investigators conducted routine interviews with her neighbors. One neighbor informed investigators that at some point between 4 a.m. and 5 a.m. on the morning Jody vanished, they had heard a deafening scream coming from the apartment complex parking lot. Investigators also heard from a neighbor who reported seeing a white Ford van in the parking lot on the morning of the disappearance. The van was a mid-1980s model. It wasn't registered to anyone living at the apartment complex. By day two of the search, investigators announced they suspected foul play. Mason City Police Chief Jack Schlieper said, Information that we have acquired today and over the investigation would lead us to believe it is possibly a foul play disappearance. Investigators were stumped with the perplexing disappearance and requested the assistance of the Iowa Criminal Investigation Division and the FBI. Helicopters were flown in from the Iowa National Guard to scan from the skies. The evidence found outside Jody's apartment was sinister, to say the least. But inside, it was neat and tidy. Nevertheless, investigators said they couldn't rule out that somebody was inside Jody's apartment before she disappeared. The rumor mill in the city began running rampant, as people suggested that Jody had been abducted by an obsessive stalker that had watched her on television. These rumors highlighted a dark underbelly of fame, that people on television can receive unwanted attention from viewers who become infatuated with them. Harassment is a fact of life for television reporters. In some cases, these viewers can presume a level of intimacy that isn't there, and in others, this infatuation can develop into something much more nefarious. Her former manager in Alexandria, Mike, said, Usually, it's not stalking. It's men who get some kind of fixation on a reporter or anchor who is coming into his house every day through the television. In the bigger markets, it seems like every station has one of those guys. Usually, it's just phone calls and letters and drive-bys, but sometimes it's more serious. Chief Schlieper dispelled these rumors, stating, We're not aware of any stalking incident that she was involved with, nor did she report any stalking incident to us. Despite the chief's comments, Jody had contacted police the previous October to report that she thought a man was following her on a jog. Police responded and reported that they found no evidence of a stalker, but the incident had frightened Jody so much that she signed up for a self-defense class at a local gym. The stalking angle was still being looked into when investigators announced they feared Jody was the victim of an abduction. They reached this conclusion based on the ominous findings in the parking lot with Mason City Police Captain Mike Halverson announcing, We consider this a possible abduction. We really don't have any other possible theories about what happened. We don't like what we found at the scene. As investigators searched for Jody, media from all across the nation embarked on Mason City, booking up rooms en masse at local motels and hotels. One tavern waitress commented that she had seen reporters from all over. The place is just full of it. 
Jody's disappearance truly struck fear in the local community, as locals scrambled to sign up for self-defense classes at Sunny Sports and Health Club. At night, residents kept their porch lights illuminated as a beacon of hope that Jody would return home safe and well. One local, Karen Schultz, said, In case she's out there wandering the streets or something and she needs a place to go, she'll see the light on. But I have a feeling she's not here. Yellow ribbons adorned trees, doorways, flagpoles, and car antennas, serving as a reminder that Jody was still missing. Over at KIMT, her desk sat empty as messages began piling up, and her telephone calls went unreturned. The specter of a potential stalker terrified her colleagues, with Amy commenting in the media, I'm just scared, you know? If this can happen once, it can happen again, and it's not supposed to happen in Mason City, Iowa. Most women who worked at the station and other local stations were too afraid to venture out alone out of fear that they would become the next woman to inexplicably vanish. Mavis Glass, who worked as a weekend anchor at KCRG-TV, said to the Gazette, I feel vulnerable, and I have for quite some time. It's terrible what happened to Jody. If there is any good to come from it, it is that we're aware not only for ourselves, but others are taking steps to help us be aware. In the wake of Jody's disappearance, steps had been made in various news stations to enhance safety, including lights in parking lots and security guards to accompany women to their cars. KIMT remained hopeful that Jody would be returning home soon and back to work. They kept her on the schedule for the early morning news, with news director Doug Merback commenting, I'm shorthanded and I want Jody back, my own selfish reason. That evening, a news conference was held where Police Chief Schlieper echoed the sentiment when he announced, We're still optimistic that we'll have a successful conclusion to the investigation. In an attempt to generate some much-needed leads, a reward was put forward for information. Local businesses and members of the community pledged $11,000 for the reward fund. KIMT also put forward a reward, and the total swelled to over $30,000. Large billboards with Jody's face emblazoned on the front were erected throughout the city. It was rare to see a business without a missing persons poster plastered to the window. Each billboard and poster begged, Find Jody. The initial search of the apartment and surrounding area turned up no clues as to Jody Huizentrude's whereabouts. The theory that she was abducted was looking more and more likely with each day that passed. On July 4th, the search for Jody was called off as investigators announced that they were now in the process of interviewing those who knew her. They then turned their attention to possible persons of interest. By day three of the search, they had interviewed more than 100 people and narrowed down the list of those they wanted to speak to again to less than 12. However, investigators made a point of noting that none of these people were considered suspects. Among those who were interviewed was 49-year-old Mason City businessman John Venice. John was close to Jody and had been spending significant time with her in the lead-up to her disappearance. They had what John described as a father-daughter relationship. The day before Jody disappeared, she had returned home from a water skiing trip to Iowa City with several friends, including John. Later that afternoon, she attended the annual Mason City Chamber of Commerce golf tournament fundraiser. 
At dinner, she mentioned to two golf partners that she had been receiving annoying phone calls and planned on changing her phone number. That night, Jody stopped by John's home to watch a videotape of a surprise 27th birthday party that he had hosted for her earlier that month. Since John was the last person to see Jody alive, naturally, he was a person of interest in the case. Investigators asked him to take part in a polygraph examination. Once it was completed, John commented in the media that he passed it with flying colors. In addition to the interviews, investigators were now searching for the white Ford van observed in the parking lot on the morning Jody disappeared. By the following month, the case was still in limbo, and questions were raised in regard to how the investigation was handled. The Mason City Globe Gazette asked a former FBI agent to examine how the case was handled. He concluded that investigators made all the right moves. Jody's family were satisfied that investigators were working their hardest, but they announced that they were toying with the idea of hiring a private investigator. The family speculated that Jody was abducted by somebody who knew her. Her friend, Kelly Torgerson, commented, She was so active, knew so many people, and made friends so easily that it could have been someone who wanted to have a more significant relationship than she was interested in. Maybe the guy didn't like the idea of her going out with others. In early August, two men were searching for turtles near a creek next to Pilot Grove Road, which is a gravel road around 90 miles southeast of Mason City. As they looked down into the shallow, murky waters from a bridge, they spotted a woman's body. She was wearing a green halter top, denim shorts, and muddy white socks. The two men bolted to a nearby home and asked to use the telephone to call police. The body was recovered that afternoon. There had been no attempts made to conceal it. Fear swept throughout the community of Mason City as speculation began circulating that the body could have been Jody. The woman had no identification, but based on the clothing, it was unlikely that the body was Jody. However, investigators still needed to be sure. At the medical examiner's office, the body was identified as 37-year-old Angela Renee Buck. She had been killed by a single gunshot wound to the chest. Jody's family let out a collective sigh of relief that it wasn't Jody, but the identification posed as an unsettling reminder that Jody was still missing. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Angela's killer was never identified, 
leaving another family with the uncertainty plaguing the Huizentrut family as the search for Jody continued. After ten weeks of waiting and wondering, Jody's family hired a private investigator to look into the disappearance. Her sister, Joanne, said, We've talked about doing this for weeks. The police tell us there is nothing new. They say they are continuing to follow up on leads, but nothing really significant. Of course, there may be things that they can't tell us. They sort of hint at that. So we've got a detective from the Twin Cities who is going to go down there, to Mason City, and see what he can do. He has said he doesn't want to waste our money if it doesn't look like he can do some good. They planned a dinner, dance, and auction that evening at the Holiday Inn in St. Cloud to raise money to pay for their efforts and for the private investigator. A potential person of interest emerged on November 9, 1995, when 33-year-old Chuck Davison was arrested for stalking and peeping on a female news anchor in the Twin Cities. Davison was manager of basketball operations for the Vancouver Grizzlies of the NBA. Over the course of several days in August, Davison was spotted peering over the woman's fence. He had been observed a handful of times by neighbors who wrote down his license plate and reported him to the police. The unidentified news anchor told police that she had seen Davison at least twice in the parking lot at her job. On one of these occasions, he was parked very close to her car and stared at her as she walked to the car. Following his arrest, investigators searching for Jody announced that they were investigating him in relation to her disappearance. However, he was quickly ruled out after he provided an airtight alibi for the morning of her disappearance. By now, it had been almost five months since Jody vanished, and her family were desperate for answers. The private investigators hadn't yet been able to finger a suspect, with Jody's mother, Jane, stating, We have three different PIs on the case and nothing. The private investigators did find a curious coincidence, however. The weekend before Jody vanished, there had been a Civil War reenactment festival in Mason City. When they looked into this, they found two other instances of women disappearing in towns where such festivals had taken place. They had also extensively questioned a man from Mason City, as well as men who were talking about the disappearance on the internet. Jane said, We've been told that some men fantasize they've been involved, and they really aren't. As the five-month anniversary was fast approaching, the family were flown out to California to tape a session with three psychics as part of the new television show, Psychic Detectives. These psychics concluded that Jody had been abducted by somebody familiar with her role at the television station, somebody who had become obsessed with her. They suggested that this man then became unglued when Jody fought back. Toward the end of December, another man was arrested for stalking a KAR-TV reporter at the station's Golden Valley studio. He had been stalking the woman for some time and had been warned by police to stay away from her. He had also received a certified letter from KARE-TV telling him to leave the reporter alone and to stay away from the studio, but he refused. Over the course of four months, Bregelman had sent the reporter 15 items in the post and he often showed up at the station and stood outside. When he was arrested, police found a cache of photographs of the reporter inside his vehicle. Investigators looked into him in relation to Jody's disappearance, but they could find no links. 
while there was no connection between Jody and either Davison or Bragelman, the stalking cases only further compounded the fear that Jody had been targeted by a stalker. As Harold Crump, president and general manager of KSTP Channel 5, commented, Is it getting worse? All I can say is, for the people who are involved, it's very serious and very upsetting. Christmas was a difficult time for Jody's family. The family always got together for a big celebration, but this year, there was no cause for celebration. Jody was still missing. They were still clinging on to that glimmer of hope that Jody would soon be found, but as each month passed, the outcome was looking bleaker and bleaker. In an interview with Grand Forks Herald, her sister said, It's unbearable at times. I can't picture the terror that she must have experienced, and then I get just sick. I picture her coming down the steps, and I think, Oh, stop it, Joanne. Don't picture her when she goes out the door. Because she's so little and sweet, and oh, she must have been just so scared. It's just is not fair that these awful things have to happen. Over time, the family had been able to return to Jody's apartment. They cleared it out, packing up all of her prized possessions into boxes, in the hopes that one day they could return them to her and help her find a new apartment. Joanne stated, She's my little sis. We'll always be looking for her until we find her. And we're going to try and make sure that the party is found that has done this. We certainly don't want anyone else to experience the pain we've experienced. Life at KIMT changed as well. Jody's colleagues were still filling in for her, and the rotation prevented establishing work patterns. Her colleagues were also now prevented from working alone as a safety precaution. Doug, the news director, said, I think they'll find the person who did this. I think they'll find Jody. And hopefully, when they find Jody, she'll still be alive. But we know with each passing day that the percentage that that could happen goes down. The new year brought no new leads as investigators announced they were no closer to solving the case than they were the previous summer. Chief Schleiper said they had pursued more than a thousand tips before adding, To date, none provide us with information that would lead us to a solid suspect. Four to five investigators still slowly worked on the case alongside the FBI, but the leads were few and far between. The chief hoped continued media exposure would finally crack the case wide open. He had appeared alongside Jody's family on Larry King Live, and Joanne was scheduled to be a guest on Sally Jesse Raphael. As for the two private investigators still working on the case, Patrick McCarthy and Doug Jossa, they said they had theories on what happened, but admitted these theories were only based on instinct and interviews. Investigator McCarthy stated, There's no real evidence, no apparent motive, no eyewitnesses to speak of. That makes it a very difficult investigation. In early May, Jody's family renewed the ground search for her in the Mason City area. Investigators provided a liaison officer to help with the search. He advised the searchers to keep an eye out for any clothing, jewelry, or anything else that appeared to be out of place among the foliage. Around 100 people assembled at 9 a.m. on May 4th and fanned out to all of the local rural areas in search of a clue. They traversed their way through dense woodland between Mason City and Rock Falls, making sure to check any vacant buildings and nooks and crannies. Jody's friend, Amy Wall, commented, It gets harder to be optimistic all the time, 
In the beginning, I think all of us were extremely optimistic, but that gets harder. By 6 p.m., the sun began to set. The group disbanded with an overwhelming sense of disappointment that nothing had been uncovered. On June 5th, it would have been Jody's 28th birthday. Her loved ones held a small gathering in her honor, but the gathering was tinged by the poignant reminder that Jody wasn't there. Her friend Amy said, Jody always made a real big thing about birthdays. This was the first time all of us could be there, except for Jody, but she was there in spirit. To mark the first anniversary, KIMT presented a half-hour special on missing persons. That evening, a candlelight service was held at the Mason City Swimming Pool. In December, a new tip came in via email to a website set up to help the search for Jody Huizentrude. The email suggested that Jody was buried in a farm field located around 35 miles southwest of Mason City. The writer of the email provided longitude and latitude coordinates and said that Jody could be found in a grave around three and a half feet down. The email had come from Australia, so investigators weren't hopeful, but they needed to investigate nevertheless. They embarked on the field and excavated the entire area, but it turned up no clues. Days later, another person of interest emerged. 18-year-old Raymond Hinders of the Marshall County town of Clemens was arrested by Canadian authorities as he attempted to cross the border. While crossing, the woman he was with said he kidnapped her from her home and forced her into her own car. She also said he had told her he knew where Jody's body was. Following his arrest, however, he denied making such a comment. Nevertheless, investigators wanted to look into him as a potential suspect, with Police Lieutenant Ron Vandeweerd stating, he allegedly abducted this gal. That alone is enough for us to take a look at him. The connection that we've been told is he made a reference to Jody on the drive up to Canada. Now, I don't know how much credence to give that. Once again, the investigation was only led to a dead end, as detectives could find no link between Hinders and Jody. The following years trickled past achingly slow for Jody's loved ones who remained distraught beyond consolation. Before they knew it, it was the second anniversary of Jody's disappearance. The unsolved case weighed heavily on investigators as well, with Police Lieutenant Vandewerd announcing to the Gazette, This case has been very frustrating. We want it solved so badly, and we've worked so hard on it, and nothing has shaken loose yet. To mark the somber two-year anniversary, Jody's colleagues planted a tree in her honor outside the station. Later that same year, Jody's loved ones created an endowment fund to remember her. Funds that were initially collected as a reward fund made up the seed money, and it would be used to award scholarships and pay for programs in areas where Jody excelled. The first scholarships were awarded to mass communication students. In early 1998, 24-year-old Tony Dewan Jackson was charged with four rapes in the Twin Cities area. The rapes had occurred back in 1997, and at the time of Jody's disappearance, he lived just two blocks away from her. He was renting a basement apartment from Estelle Tierney, who reported that he had once threatened her. She accused him of making long-distance phone calls on her telephone and taking a heater from her house. She recalled, when I asked him about it, he called me a bitch and said, I'm going to get you. I'm going to kill you. I was afraid. I left my house that night and stayed with a neighbor. 
Eventually, Estelle evicted Jackson and needed to call the police to get him out of her home. She stated, an hour later, he was back. I called the police again and stood on my porch with a baseball bat until they came. He was a real devil. Jackson had been questioned early on in the investigation and denied any knowledge. But with the new charges, investigators decided to have a second look. There were some striking similarities in the cases, including the fact that Jackson's victims and Jody were all of a similar height and weight, and all had blonde hair. In the rape cases, Jackson had learned his victims' routines and then struck, sometimes using unlocked doors or windows to gain entry into their homes and apartments. Once inside, he used handcuffs or a rope to bind their hands and wrapped duct tape around their heads. He then repeatedly raped them while threatening to kill them. In each case, he had brought along with him a rape kit which contained rope, tape, handcuffs, and a semi-automatic handgun. Moreover, just a couple of weeks after Jody disappeared, Jackson left Mason City, and there were some suspicions regarding his habits on the day she vanished. He left work early in the night before Jody vanished on June 27, 1995, claiming he had a medical ailment. He showed up for work the next day, but then left after just one hour. It was investigators in Twin Cities that noticed the similarities, and they shared their frustration that Mason City investigators appeared to have an apparent lack of attention to said similarities. Woodbury Police Sergeant Jay Alberio had sent extensive information about Jackson over to Mason City investigators months earlier, including Jackson's palm print for them to compare to the unidentified palm print found on Jody's car, as well as Jackson's hair to compare to the unidentified hair found. Investigators finally sent the evidence over to Iowa's Division of Criminal Investigation for the comparisons to be made. While this was being done, they traced the car that Jackson owned at the time of Jody's disappearance to a woman in Mason City who turned it over for examination. Investigators then learned that Jackson had purchased the used car just one day before Jody vanished and then returned it two weeks later. According to the speedometer, it had been driven 548 miles. As the evidence was being analyzed, Jackson professed his innocence, telling the Star Tribune, I can't even begin to elaborate on any of that. It has nothing to do with me. I have nothing to hide. Believe me, if there was something bad Tony Jackson was into, God guaranteed you'd find out. Jackson stood trial on two of the rape charges in March of 1998. He was convicted of one rape, but a mistrial was declared in the other case. He was sentenced to 15 years in prison as well as another four years for burglary, which would be served consecutively. He stood trial for the other two rape charges later that year and was convicted of both. He was sentenced to life in prison. In handing down the sentence, Ramsey Court District Judge Mary Louise Kloss called Jackson a severe and serious danger to the community and questioned whether the unrepentant man would ever change. After the sentence was handed down, Assistant Ramsey County Attorney Belinda Elledge, who worked as a prosecutor in the rape cases, shared her belief that Jackson was responsible for Jody's disappearance. In an interview with the Des Moines Register, she said, In my own mind and in my own heart, I think he did it. Knowing what I know about him and the way he has been involved as a rapist, I would bet my bottom dollar. The belief that Jackson had abducted and killed Jody was further compounded once he was sent to prison 
and allegedly confessed to an inmate about the murder. In May of 1999, the case against Jackson in relation to Jody's disappearance fell to pieces when forensic evidence failed to link him to the missing woman. Police Captain Halverson announced, After conducting a thorough investigation, which included interviews, crime lab analysis, records review, and polygraph examination, Tony Jackson is not considered, at this time, a viable suspect in the investigation. Despite the setback, investigators weren't waiting long for another person of interest to emerge. Back in January of 1999, 19-year-old Jackie Folkers was found stabbed to death in her home in Britt, Iowa. Much like Jody, she had failed to show up for work that morning. When a coworker went to check on her, they found her splayed out on her bedroom floor, suffering from fatal stab wounds. In June, it was revealed that shortly before Jackie was killed, she had told relatives that a man had told her he was involved in the disappearance of Jody. Around three weeks before Jackie was attacked, a man had entered the Colony Inn where she worked. Her uncle, David Mitchell, recalled, Some man had came in and was talking to Jackie about he was the one who either kidnapped Jody Hoisentrout or had something to do with it. Investigators investigated the potential link, but there was no correlation between the two cases. It was just another dead end in a case plagued with dead ends. In July of that same year, another person of interest materialized. 50-year-old Donald Blum was arrested and charged with the kidnap and murder of Katie Poirier, who was abducted from a Moose Lake convenience store on May 26th. When his home was searched, human remains were found. Jody's DNA was sent to compare to the DNA of the human remains, but it turned out the body wasn't Jody. The remains have never been conclusively identified and Katie's body has never been found. Nevertheless, Blum was convicted of Katie's murder. Investigators working on Jody's case eventually ruled him out as a suspect, but even today, it's speculated that Blum had more victims than just Katie. In March 2001, Jody's family filed a petition to administer her estate. Her sister, Joanne, said, this is one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. Everybody tells us Jody is no longer with us, but I still hold out a faint glimmer of hope. The petition is a legal formality that we have to do in order to take care of some family things involving Jody. The law says you have to wait five years, and it's been almost six. I hated to have to do it, but it is necessary. The following month, Cerro Gordo District Court Judge John Stewart Scholes appointed Clear Lake attorney Robert Swanson to represent Jody. In May, his independent investigation yielded conclusions almost identical to those of law enforcement agencies, that Jody had been abducted and most likely killed. In his findings, he wrote, there just isn't any evidence that Jody voluntarily left her apartment or staged the scene of her disappearance. There is evidence that she was involuntarily removed from her apartment complex. There is no evidence that Jody is currently alive. Presumably, she met an untimely early and involuntary demise. She was declared legally dead. The decision was simply a formality, and Jody's family said that they would continue in their search for truth and justice. After Jody was declared dead, Jim Feldhouse suggested that a serial killer was active and that Jody was one of his victims. 
Jim was an Army veteran with degrees in chemistry and computer science. For the past six years, he had been working as an investigative researcher, and he had been building a database to try and match victims to possible killers. He found that 16 women across the nation had disappeared around the same time as civil and revolutionary war reenactments, including Jody. He stated, To me, that signals it could well be a serial killer. Most often, he's there and gone and doesn't leave a trace. Sometimes, these cases are almost impossible to solve. In April 2004, Police Chief Schlieper died after a battle with pancreatic cancer. He had worked exhaustively on the disappearance of Jody. Schlieper was haunted by his inability to crack the case and see justice served. That same year, investigators returned to the last place Jody was seen alive, John Vancey's home. They had learned from the new homeowner that a portion of concrete on the basement floor appeared to be a different age than the rest. The entire basement was excavated, but investigators found nothing. In 2006, an email came in to the Globe Gazette, which read, I am an eyewitness to what happened 11 years ago. I've recently gone to the police with the information, but I still can't get over what took place. Until I can talk to and trust you, the only thing I will tell you is that there was more than one person involved. Another email came in to the website findjody.com, which had been set up by Jody's former colleagues. It read, I was 13 in 1995 and forced to witness what happened to Jody. I've recently went to police with the information. The woman, Cindy Sweeney, made herself known to KMSP-TV and was granted an interview. In the interview, Cindy claimed that six men cut up, burned, and disposed of Jody's body during a 36-hour period. She explained that at the time, she was 13 years old and a runaway. She was picked up by the six men under the premise of going to a party. However, the men drove her out to a barn 20 minutes away from Mason City. She claimed that she entered the barn and heard a woman screaming. As she moved further into the barn, she saw a woman impaled on a hook. She stated, I backed myself into a corner. Investigators interviewed Cindy, who provided six names of people allegedly involved. However, days later, Cindy recanted her story and was charged with providing false information. She pleaded guilty to the charge and was ordered to serve 30 days in jail. In 2014, Jody's mother, Jane, passed away without ever knowing the fate of her youngest daughter. Four years later, there was another buzz surrounding the case when it was announced that investigators had executed a search warrant against John. They wanted to obtain GPS data from a 1999 Honda Civic and a 2013 GMC 1500. However, the search warrant was sealed, meaning no further information became public. Despite an extensive investigation, which included following up on more than a thousand tips, Jody has never been found, and no main suspect has ever been identified. While 27 years have passed since Jody's perplexing disappearance, her memory still lives on among her loved ones and her friends she worked alongside at various television stations throughout her career. In a 2020 interview, Janet Mason, the news director at a TV station in the Twin Cities, remarked, I'm really hoping that Jody can hear me right now. 
because what I would like to say to her is that the people who love you and care about you have not given up to find justice for you. There's hope for solving Jody's case. This is a cold case that we want to solve. They still hold on to hope that one day a crucial tip will emerge, cracking this cold case wide open. This episode was researched and written by Emily G. Thompson. Editing and scoring by Corey Hiltman. Script editing, additional writing, and production direction by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law and Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. We will be back next week. Thank you for listening, and please be safe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.